Hey, good, uh, good morning, Christ City Church. Hey, yo, I'll take it. Uh, we, um, I, uh, I, we were setting up ahead of time and was talking with Jess. I'm like, so, I, you know, how was the weekend? She was like, hey, I lit a pumpkin spice candle and cuddled up with a book. It was a great weekend. I'm like, man, that, that sounds fantastic. So hope you're enjoying the first few days of, uh, of fall. Uh, my name is Matthew. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, I serve as one of the pastors here at Christ City. Really delighted um, that you're here. Thank you to all of you uh, on the stream. Uh, glad you're here. Different angle over here. Perfect. I like that. That's good. I, I would have to do that. Uh, it'd be bad. Um, thank you for uh, you know braving the little bit of the of the rain. We've got a, a little bit of a situation back here, but um, uh, you know we're okay with that. Uh, some of you know I've been dealing with plumbing problems, so I walked in. I was like, yeah, of course. Like devil is busy. Yeah, even uh, even here. Um, have you ever been in a place, uh, just to jump straight way in, have you ever been in a place where you have felt like, like a bit of an outsider? Uh, any kind of spot where you, like maybe you were there, but you felt like, I don't think I'm supposed to be here, where you just kind of felt out of place and weren't sure? Uh, my first job after seminary, I was living in Fresno, California. Shout out, anybody Central Valley, California? No? Good. Flying solo. It's all right. I don't mind. Feeling out of place. Um, I was working for a community development organization, and uh, my job was to work with area churches, mobilizing uh, volunteers of faith for uh, this mentoring program that, uh, that we had set up um, working with, uh, with young people. And what that meant was that from time to time, I would have to go to area churches and like give a presentation and say, this is who I am, this is who we are, and this is the opportunity that we have for you, for you to mentor young people uh, in the community. And sometimes it would be like a presentation like during the announcements or like some missions moment where they'd be like, hey, we have this person. We'd like for you to know uh, what's going on. So I'd share about the work and invite anybody who was interested to come and see me after the service. You got me? So one Sunday morning, I'm at a Fresno church. I won't tell you which one to protect the innocent, but um, it was a church that was um, in the free-spirited Pentecostal stream of the, of the Protestant family of faith. So I'm there with a colleague of mine, uh, Don, and another friend, uh, Felicia. And prior to the, to the sermon, I, you know, I stand up, this is who I am, I give my presentation, and I sit back down, but they have me sit on the front pew, which is where all of the deacons sit. And so I'm like, all right, cool, front row seat to receive the message that the Lord has. So I sit down there, and I'm there with all of the deacons, and the sermon gets going. It's a moving message, beautiful service. And then as the preacher is beginning to wind down, the the deacon that's next to me, he leans over, and he says, listen, I want you to, to come with us when we stand at the front to receive people for prayer. I said, perfect, no problem. I'm ready. I'm, you know, preach prayer, die at a moment's notice. I'm, I'm your guy. Here I am. So he says, okay. So um, it's just, I'm thinking, you know, no problem. Worship leader of the choir comes back up. The pastor calls the deacons forward. Uh, and Deacon Friend leans over to me, just in case I didn't get the memo. He just leans over and goes, just do what I do. I said, okay, yes, sir. <laughs> so we walk up to the front of the stage with the other deacons, and, and I stand next to my friend. Now, what I haven't told you is that the deacon that is sitting next to me, he's 6'4", he's wearing a powder blue suit. I am not. Um, <laughs> It's a choir and the sings, they sing, and then it's like, you know, if you want prayer, come forward. And then all of the deacons in unison began doing this. <laughs> and I'm looking over, and I'm like, that's what my guy wants me to do? Like, 
this to receive the people for prayer and receiving of the Holy Spirit? And I'm immediately thinking, I don't know those movements. Um, and I'm embarrassed. I feel out of place and I don't know what to do. But I know I'm supposed to follow my guy right here. But somehow my arms won't work. And so I end up like I couldn't fully go in. And so I end up doing like some like T-Rex robot move. My arms only go this high. And I go like this. Don and Felicia are in the back, falling out of the pew, laughing at me with me in the powder blue giant, receiving people for prayer with my sprinkler arms. Like, and I'm just like, I am not supposed to be here. This is not good. I felt so out of place and like I shouldn't be there. And I just wanted to like melt into the carpet. The people come forward for prayer. None of them come to me. Um, <laughs> And then the service was over. We go sit back down on the front row. My guy leans over and goes, you did good, which I think actually means that was terrible. <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> Get out of here. You're not getting any volunteers out of this place if you can't figure out how to receive people for prayer properly. <laughs> you ever felt like you're there, but you're not supposed to like be there, but you're there anyway, right? Like just you're, you're giving a good go of it. I think in Mark 7, uh, there are these stories of a couple of people who who they feel something like that, like they're there, they're not sure if they're going to be there, but they're going to give a good go of it. Uh, they're, they're not sure if they belong, but they're there nonetheless. And even still, while they are there, much like I did with the deacon that was next to me, they experienced the embrace and the welcome and the invitation from Jesus. We're making our way through Mark's gospel here uh, for the rest of this year. We started our Mark sermon series at the beginning of this year, in 2022, and we went through the first five chapters, then we took a break over the summer. And we returned to preaching through Mark's gospel just a few weeks ago, beginning in Mark 6, where we left off. And our main purpose as we move through Mark, our, our, our sort of central theme for us is that we want to understand what it means to follow Jesus by the way of the cross. This whole point of us sort of the reading guides and uh, the small group guides and wrestling with the texts in small groups and here in this place and praying through it is that we just want to understand what it means to follow in the ways of Jesus. We want to deepen our understanding of what it means to follow Jesus individually as, as, as individuals that are sort of moving through this world in 21st century America, but also what does it mean for us communally as a congregation and as Christ City Church? What does it mean for us to follow Jesus in each moment of our lives, in each season of our lives, and in every sphere of our lives? This morning we come to two stories in Mark 7, two stories of people that in the culture of Jesus' day would have been viewed as outsiders in a number of different ways. It's going to be helpful for us to remember that um, just a, a bit of what has come before this story uh, in Mark 7. Last week, Justin preached on the first half of chapter 7, and, and in that scene, Jesus is in the town of Galilee, <clears throat> which is located on the northwestern edge of the Sea of Galilee. The geographies are important because geographies matter. They, they mattered in the ancient Near East, and they matter today. They tell us something about a place and the people that call that place home. And the geographies, they are important here because they have political and historical and religious and ethnic implications. For the first century reader or hearer of Mark's gospel, for Jesus to have been in Galilee, it would have triggered for that hearer what type of community Jesus was in. He was in the town of Gennesaret, which is a thoroughly Jewish community. And in that scene, in that Jewish community, Jesus has a confrontation with, with Pharisees, with religious leaders from the Jewish capital of Jerusalem. 
In Mark 7, 1 through 23, they're, they're, kinda, they're, they're pressing Jesus about what it means to follow God specifically and specifically who's in and who's out when it comes to the family of God and the kingdom of God. The Pharisees are very confrontational in this moment and in this uh, story, and they're stubborn. And Jesus says, you're actually behaving hypocritically. The first half of Mark 7, Jesus is in a Jewish community. He's facing Jewish leaders, those who the first readers and hearers of the Gospels would have understood as being the heroes, those that are closest to God, the ones that should hold the solutions for what ails the world. And yet they are shown to be antagonistic to Jesus' work and his message. Our two stories here, they're in a very different geography with a very different group of people. First story takes place in the region of Tyre and Sidon. This is a, uh, and the second story is in a region called the Decapolis. And these geographies, they likewise would have indicated to the first hearers uh, of where Jesus was. And that he was speaking to folks that would have been viewed as outsiders. In Mark 1, 24, Jesus left that place. He left Gennesaret. He left the place on the... Uh, western shore the sea of galilee he left that place and he went to the vicinity of tyre and while he's in that place a mother of a daughter who is possessed by an impure spirit came she came and she fell at jesus feet and the second story down in verse 26 uh that we see that the woman or in the first story the woman was was greek and she was born in syrian phoenicia and there's a lot here so i want to peel back the layers a bit Jesus is in a region that has a violent history with Israel. You see, Tyre is located in what's modern-day Lebanon, and it was a port city along the Mediterranean Sea. In the 2nd century B.C., that region was ruled by the Greek emperor Antiochus. In Israel, they rebelled against Antiochus' tyranny, but they were crushed during that Jewish rebellion. Tyre and its sister city, Sidon, they sided with Greece, they sided with uh, the empire, and they refused to stand with Israel. And that betrayal, it stung Israel. And it led to the two regions hating each other for centuries. And that's where Jesus is. And he meets a woman who is there, a woman who is Greek, and she is born in the region. So she's not only like just sort of from a different ethnic group that just happens to be living in that place, uh, that would be viewed with hostility by Israel, but she is from the very people that Israel would disdain. But it's not just her geography and her ethnicity, though, that would place her as an outsider, but it's also her circumstances. She is a single mother of a demon-possessed child. And from the vantage point of Israel, this woman is marginalized geographically, ethnically, circumstantially. There would have been uh, nothing about the ways that Mark describes her that would have indicated to a first century Jewish reader of this story that this woman is to be viewed uh, as anything other than a charity case at best or an enemy of God's people at worst. We'll turn to her story in just a minute, but I want to move forward and look ahead at the geography of the second story. Mark 7, verse 31, then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre, and he went through Sidon, down, the sea, uh, down to the Sea of Galilee, and into the region of the Decapolis. So Jesus leaves the Mediterranean coast. Not sure why you would want to leave the beach and the coast, but he's like, I got work to do, the kingdom of God, and so he leaves. He goes, travels back uh, to the Sea of Galilee. He passes through the Jewish region on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. He crosses over to the eastern side of the sea to a region called the Decapolis. Decapolis is a Greek word meaning the ten cities. This would have been another non-Jewish, heavily Gentile region. 
It's located on the farther side of the sea. The sea, by the way, which was a physical barrier between the Jewish side and the non-Jewish side. The Decapolis was heavily Gentile, but it also included Samaritans that were there that were on the uh, southern border of the area. Another group that had a violent history with, with Israel. When Rome conquered the areas, uh, Samaritans were known to join the Roman army as a way to uh, harass and oppress and openly engage in state-sanctioned violence against the Jews. But yet that's where Jesus goes, to that very place. And while he's there, there's a man that has a number of disabilities, namely he's deaf and he's unable to speak. A man is brought to him by his friends. And when Jesus speaks to the man, he actually speaks in Aramaic, which is a, an interesting uh, a point to note. It indicates that the man may have actually been Jewish ethnically, but was living in a Gentile Samaritan area. And in, other, in other words, here's one who, from the perspective of the first hearers of this gospel, who is living among the enemy rather than among his own God-fearing people, one who may have been viewed as a traitor to his people, one who has a physical malady that would have prohibited him from gaining entrance into the temple in order to worship and was thus viewed as religiously unclean. Again, by virtue of his geography, by virtue of his circumstances, this man was one who was understood to be outside of the blessing of God and God's people and God's kingdom. Two stories Two geographies, different geographies, different ethnicities, different circumstances, yet both are viewed as outside to the family of God. And it isn't just this outsider status that's shared by these two, by the woman and the deaf man. What's actually also shared is their desperation. In verse 26, a Syrophoenician woman, she, she begs Jesus to heal her daughter. And in verse 32, the friends of the deaf man, they begged Jesus to place his hand on their friends, which is to say they begged Jesus to heal their friend. Verse 26, she begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. And then jump down, verse 32, they begged Jesus to place his hands on them. They were desperate. And they, they needed help. And they cried out to Jesus. They, they disregarded social and cultural norms and mores, and they, and they cried out to the one that they believed could help their situation. Begging, it's a, it's a curious, it's, it's an interesting action, is it not? It's, it, it, it's an act of hope as much as it's an act of distress in some ways. It's a recognition, often a public recognition, that you are vulnerable and that you are in a state of need such that you cannot actually help yourself. When was the last time that you, that you begged? I mentioned a few weeks ago um, that this summer I took a trip to Peru, so bear with me, another Peru trip's coming your way. Uh, when I went to my middle son Elias. Um, it's early in the morning, it's middle of the trip, it's early in the morning, and we have to catch a train uh, to Machu Picchu, and so we are staying uh, in a hotel, and we head out to the dining room of the hotel where we're staying, and we don't have a lot of time, but I feel pretty confident in my organizational abilities, which is problem number one, uh, and, but I'm like, no, we ha we'll grab some breakfast, and then uh, the train station is just about 300 yards from the hotel, so not super close, but not super far, but it's kind of through, the, through a windy neighborhood. I've got all the documents that we need for, a day, for the day. They're folded up properly. I've got our train tickets. I've got our tickets to get um, into the ancient city. I've got our tickets for uh, the lodging later that night, uh, for our meals, all of it. Um, 
And uh, so, we, so we eat breakfast, and we begin walking to the train station. We get about 50 yards from the train station, and I realize that I don't have those papers, which represent, like, like without those things, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm like, oh, bro, we don't, have, we don't have the thing. And he's like, oh, I thought you had them. I was like, I did. And then, I don't know, coffee cup and a banana. I don't know what happened, but it was not in my hands right now. So then I have to find, like, a motor taxi, which is like a scooter with a sidecar, but it had a roof on it. I don't know if you're feeling me, but that's the thing. So I'm hailing one of those down. I say, hey, I got to go back like just uh, 200 yards through the deal. And my Spanish isn't working because now I'm feeling stressed, but I'm trying to do it. So we jump into the scooter and I'm like, hey, yo, wait right here. Don't go anywhere. And I don't get out of the scooter because I don't want him to leave. We get back to the hotel. Elias jumps out. I said, just go into the, to the dining room and grab the papers and come back. Elias goes in. He comes back. He doesn't have the papers. I said, bro, what, what's, like, 10 minutes, we got to go, where's the papers? He's like, I don't know, the people said that the papers aren't there, but that the other couple that was sitting at the table next to us, they took the papers, and they're going to the train station. I'm like, who are they? And so now I'm like, I don't, like, there's, I don't know anybody in this town, bro. So I, now I got to get out of the motor taxi. Elias is there, and I'm talking with, now Eddie has showed up. Eddie is the manager, and he said, well, the nice German couple. I said, I don't know. I don't know no German people, and I don't know any in Peru. Like, who are you talking about? And, like, I'm frantic. I'm panicking. I'm like, Eddie, I just need some help, Eddie. And he's like, all right, well, let's go down to the train station because everyone is like, the Germans went to the train station, and they had your papers. I'm like, well, let's go back to the train station. So we're going. I've got, like, a 40-pound pack that I'm carrying with Eddie and Elias down to the train station. I'm like, oh, my God, like, this whole thing. This is like, I've prayed over this trip, Lord. How could this have happened? So we get back to the thing. Now, in order for me to get on the train, I have to take this pack off and check it at the luggage check thing because I can't take it on the train. So we get there. There's a crowd and they're like, hey, the Germans have your ticket. I'm like, who are all these strangers? And who are the Germans? They're like, they're already on the train. And so I'm like, Elias, just go to the train, find the Germans. I'm going to drop my pack off and come back. And they're like, all right, well, you got to hurry. They're blowing the whistle. I run back to the luggage thing, take it off, drop my pack. And the guy says, well, in order for you to check your pack, I need the ticket. I'm like, the Germans have my ticket. He's like, I, I, no sé. Like, I don't know. Como, you know, like, so now I got to run back. And I'm like, Eddie, I don't have the thing. And they want and he, and he, Eddie's just like, get on the train. I will take care of the luggage. I'm like, okay, Eddie. And I go, like, I run through the deal. Like, there's a crowd at the gate, and they're like, cheering i'm the last guy on i like hop onto the thing look back as the germans are waving at waving at me eddie like recedes into the crowd and disappears we get on the train we go and i'm like i i, I like i'm just begging him like please i reach, go to retrieve the bag two days later i'm like i don't even know like maybe i'll show up like maybe eddie like disappears who knows what happens i go i go back to the luggage claim place i walk up i don't even say anything he goes i know who you are eddie told me Here's your bag. Like, I was just, it was just a desperation just to get on a train to go to a vacation place, right? Like, like the, the sense of, I, I, there's nothing I can do to get myself out of this situation. I was helpless. I was begging. I, I, I needed help that I couldn't provide for myself. And some of you have actually found yourselves begging for something far more important than a train to a vacation destination. Some of you have been Begging for a child like the woman in Tyre. 
begging for the life of a friend or someone that you love, like the friends of the deaf man and the Decapolis, pleading for a break or a breakthrough and not sure, sure if it would happen. You were in a place of, of desperation. That state of being and that state of mind, that's, that's what Mark is describing in chapter 7. But the thing that Mark also wants to, to know is that their acts of desperation were also signs of their faith that Jesus wants us to emulate. The story of these two outsiders, they are laid alongside the stories of the stubborn, hypocritical Pharisees earlier in the chapter. And the message is clear. It's the Seraphonician woman and, and the friends of the blind man. They are the ones that are the heroes in the story. They are the ones who experience the embrace of God and the welcome into God's family. Now, I do want to touch on a troubling issue that, um, that is troubling for us as we read this passage, particularly in verses 26 through 30 with the Seraphonician woman. There's a tough issue that we need to name here, and it's the conversation between Jesus and the woman. Mark recounts the conversation beginning in verse 26. The woman was a Greek was a Greek born in Seraphonicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. Verse 27, first, let the children eat all they want, he, Jesus, told her. For it's not right to take children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. When we read this passage, when I read this passage as 21st century Americans and through, through that lens, Jesus' words, they look harsh and demeaning, if not altogether dehumanizing, frankly. There was an earlier version of the sermon that I wrote that I titled it, Was Jesus a Racist? Because I wondered what's happening here. And when I read this, I'm troubled, I'm confused about what's going on and what Jesus is doing. And, and I have to tell you, uh, I'm not altogether clear on why Jesus uses the language that he uses. I'm just not. But a few insights can help us. First, it is to say that Jesus is using language that is often, that was often used among Jews of the day to describe those that lived in Tyre. What is also interesting is Mark's inclusion of this story. Mark is incredibly, he just writes his story with candor. He just lays it out. He doesn't sugarcoat one thing or another. There's a frankness to the gospel of Mark. Mark's not interested in sugarcoating what happens or what is said. There's actually something quite refreshing in that, to be honest. But we're left with trying to understand what Jesus is doing here. I will point you, a couple of years ago, Pastor Andrea preached on this, uh, on this passage and its counterpart in Matthew during our Etzer series. I would encourage you to um, take a listen to that message. We'll link it um, in the podcast as well for you. It's filled with incredibly solid biblical scholarship and pastoral insight. In her sermon, she notes that the tensions that we run into in this passage, she notes uh, other commentaries that will often massage this passage in a couple of ways. Either it is assumed that somehow we are today more aware or more woke than Jesus was, like Jesus was a sexist racist, or the words of Jesus are defended using some semantics or some general, well, it was just culturally accepted sort of gloss over. And neither of those are entirely sufficient responses, or at least not for me. However, what is important for us to remember is what we know to be true of Jesus in this passage, and including in passages that are confusing. 
what we know about Jesus and the redemptive arc that the story of the Bible takes. And so let what we know about Jesus and what we know of the overarching story of God's love that's found in the Bible be our guide as we wrestle with these hard texts. The other requirement for us as we, as we wrestle with this is to hold on to what Mark is attempting to communicate about the Seraphonician woman in this story. When I get lost uh, in the weeds of the language of dogs and children, what I miss is the vista of the forest wherein this woman is the hero, not the victim. If I get lost in the story of that, what, what I mean is when we were talking about this in our preaching meeting, we were talking about it and sort of wrestling with the harshness of what Jesus says, and we sort of paused and said, if the Seraphonician woman were in this preaching meeting right now, what would she say to us? And the sense was that she would say, you're getting lost in the words, and you're going to lose the fact that I'm the hero of this story, not the victim. As feminist theologians C.C. Kroger and Mary Evans note, let us not lose sight of this strong, sharp-witted Gentile woman who is altruistic and persistent and inventive, who does not hesitate to approach Jesus. And a Jesus who learns from a woman who transcends the racist and sexist boundaries of his culture, who recognizes insights from outside the pale and acknowledges that faith can be found in the unlikeliest of geographies. They continue, Jesus is approached by a, a marginalized woman, a, a Gentile Greek woman, a Seraphonician by birth. And there is an implied comparison between how this woman approaches Jesus and how the Pharisees and teachers of the law approach Jesus earlier in chapter 7. The woman's approach and the woman's faith is to be celebrated and emulated. In both instances, the woman's daughter and the deaf man, healing is found there. What Mark wants us to know is that those that are on the margins, that those who have experienced rejection, that those become the ones that find entrance into God's family. Where the religious elite are chastised, the unexpected ones, it's the unexpected ones, it's the, 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 the women, the oppressed, those viewed as unclean and antagonistic to God, they come from places where God heals rather than scorns. And where the religious leaders dis display hypocrisy, these people from the places of desolation display a faith that is championed and is responded to by God. Their reward is more than healing, though. It, 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 is, it is the embrace of God. Jesus sees them, and, and Jesus embraces them. Jesus welcomes them into his family, and Mark invites us to follow in their faithful footsteps. The Seraphonician woman and the man who is deaf and mute, their, their exclusion is exchanged for welcome and love and embrace. As British poet David Gascon so beautifully writes, Christ of revolution and of poetry, the rejected and condemned become agents of the divine that humanity's long journey might not be in vain. Jesus offers invitation and embrace to those who have for so long experienced rejection and isolation at the hands of the religious. One more story. Uh, my son Elias, he's uh, playing football uh, for a community team, Ridge Road Titans. Shout out, Ridge Road. What's up? Um, <clears throat> we'll take it, bro. Ridge Road Titans. Um, his, school, his school doesn't have a team, so, uh, so he's playing for a, a, a for, so I had to hunt one down, play for a community team. 
I guess it was a bit daunting initially because, like, I didn't know, uh, yeah, go- like, how do I Google, like, football teams, D.C., like, Washington, some team shows up. Like, I'm like, I'm, that's not what I'm trying to look for. Like, and frankly, uh, you know, I just wasn't sure that I was going to be able to find a-, a team for his age group, and I was torn because he really wanted to play. Um, but they, I found a team, uh, an under-14 team. Uh, the coach actually reached out to him, and uh, there was space on the roster for the Ridge Road Titans. It's a neighborhood team based at the Ridge Road Community Center. I'd exchanged a few text messages with the coach. He called me. We had a conversation. And so then on a Wednesday, we drove over to Ridge Road, and we went to the practice. And, and it was scary and a bit intimidating. It's like 150 kids, sort of different age groups, parents sitting in the bleachers, kind of watching the kids. And I kind of felt like I did in the church in Fresno years ago. Like, we're just walking through. Like, we don't know anybody. Kind of stand out a little bit. Like, yeah, we're the new guys. Like, I'm not sure. Being new and all, we just felt like, felt like outsiders to the whole situation. Then Coach... Coach Hezzy walked up, Lias introduced himself, Coach introduced himself, there are a few introductions, and then Coach, like, the first time we showed up, like, we were there for seven and a half minutes, Coach was like, you want to practice? And Lias was like, bet. We don't have no pads, we didn't take no physical or nothing, like, we probably were playing a little fast and loose with some of the rules, but <laughs> I don't mind playing fast and loose with some of the rules. So what Coach did was he brought him onto the field. He stopped practice brought him onto the field, and he said, I want to introduce you to Eli. Call him Eli. So I want you to introduce you to Eli. He's your new teammate. He's part of the team. And the whole team surrounds him, puts Elias in the middle. They surround him. They clap, and they cheer for him. And they line him up as wide receiver. He went from being sort of an outsider and just a stranger to immediately to being part of the group, part of the family. And that's how it is for us. That's how it is for you too. Maybe it is that you're here and you're like, man, I'm not sure. Like, I mean, Watson doesn't have a powder blue suit, but he just as well have one because I feel a bit out of place. I just want you to know that you're welcome here. Welcome home. Maybe you've experienced rejection and isolation at the hands of Pastors that look like me or sound like me, and, and I'm sorry for that. And I just want you to know that Jesus offers healing and embrace and welcome to everybody. Because healing and embrace is often found in the most unlikely of places, including a leaky cafeteria on a rainy Sunday morning. Let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, come in this place. Meet us in this moment. Christ of revolution and of poetry, I pray that we would receive the love that you extend to us even now. Spirit, though many of us have experienced rejection and condemnation, Jesus, I pray that because of you, we would recognize that we can be agents of the divine. Spirit, I pray that whatever has been wounded, whatever has been hurt and harmed, spiritually, 
or physically, God, that by your spirit you would heal. I pray these things in Jesus' name.